Thanks for checking out this sermon at New Beginnings. As a church, we exist to become an authentic, biblical community. That transforms our city and impacts the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make you aware of a few things before we begin. First, we would love to connect with you on our website. NBBCTX.org. There you can find more information about who we are. Additional resources and links to our social media network. As well as an opportunity to give. To what God is doing in and through our church. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, good morning, church. So glad you guys are here uh, this morning. My name is Matt Darby. I am the campus pastor here on our Gilmer campus, and I am excited for the opportunity to open God's Word with you. I love those songs that we got to sing. I love to sing How He Loves. Here's my favorite line. I don't have time to maintain these regrets. Golly, if I could walk in the freedom of not maintaining regret of past failure, right? I don't have time to maintain these regrets. Why? Because I should be consumed by this. He loves us. He loves us. So I am excited to be sharing with you from God's word this morning. Uh, These last several weeks, we have been preaching through our series called Passion Week, the road to the cross. And what we're doing is looking at the significant events in the life of Christ in that final week of his life, those last few days that really shaped um, the foundations of our faith and our believing. And I believe that today uh, we will look into the most difficult and uh, trying moment of the life of Christ, and that is the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a holy moment in the life of Christ, and I I want us to treat it uh, as such today. And listen, it's a moment of intimacy, of vulnerability, and of agony. So with that in mind, I want you to grab your Bible, go to Mark chapter 14. Go to Mark chapter 14. And we're going to start in verse uh, 32. Mark chapter 14, we'll start in verse 32. And as you're Uh, doing that and you're making your way to Mark 14, I want to ask you a question. Who comes to mind when I ask you to think of someone who is tough? All right. I want you to think of someone who is tough. Who's the tough guy or gal in your life? Who comes to mind when you think of that person? All right. When I grew up every week, uh, some, someone entered into our home that I believed was to look at that. Come on. Huh? Listen, I'm telling you right now, to this day, I would do whatever David Hasselhoff told me to do. I promise you. That's, look at that hair. You look at that. That's not fair. I'm just frustrated. It's just, it's really, it's, it's, a, it's a terrible thing. And, uh, and the A-team, look at these guys. I love it when a plan comes together. You know what I mean? Anybody else? These, these shows just nourished your heart and life growing up? All right, some of you just didn't watch the right shows. I don't know what to tell you. These guys, these were the tough guys in my life. Here's why. They never lost a fight. Every week they got into a fight, and every week they won. They always caught the bad guy. They always got the girl. It didn't matter how many times they got shot at. They never got hit. It was unbelievable. I don't know. Still to this day, I'm not sure how they pulled it off. These were the tough guys (laughs) that I thought were tough growing up. And listen, I, I think all of us have this idea of what it means to be tough, right, to have this inner strength and determination that sets you apart. And certainly, when I think of Jesus, 
I think of things, uh, those things come to mind. When I think of him, I think of someone who was tough. Here's what we know. Jesus grew up a carpenter, right? Which means he hauled lumber. He built furniture, built tables. He may have even built homes. We don't know, but what we do know is that required strength. Just a few weeks ago, we looked at, at Jesus entering into the temple, and he turned over the tables of the money changers, and he ran them out, and it says he wouldn't allow anyone to cross the courtyard of the temple. Listen, that required not only a physical strength and toughness, but an inward toughness to stand against what was going wrong. And in a few days' time from now, we will see him go to the cross, and he will endure one uh, undeserved torment after another. And God's Word teaches us he does not open his mouth in self-defense or in complaint. That is the epitome of toughness and strength. But look, when we look into the Garden of Gethsemane, we see something rather different. We, we see something that we wouldn't expect. So uh, right there, Mark chapter 14, let's start in verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and he prayed saying the same words. What words? Father, remove this cup from me. In verse 40, And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Verse 41, And he came the third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Father, illuminate your word to us this morning. God, I, I fully confess my need for you, uh, my need for your presence and your spirit. God, we need that in this room today. I'm praying that you would open our eyes to see the power in this moment, to see the truth of this moment, and that, God, it would inspire gratitude and thanksgiving and worship in us. Thank you for Jesus. Uh, let us hear your voice now. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to give you just a little bit of background on this Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Jesus and his disciples, th this was one of their favorite places. Um, the garden was about a mile long, and it sat on the ridge that paralleled the eastern part of Jerusalem right there on the Mount of Olives. As a matter of fact, the word Gethsemane means olive press. So this was a mile-long grove of olive trees and the presses where they would crush the olive to get the oil. 
And Jesus loved coming here for solitude. The Bible tells us that Jesus would often, sometimes daily, come here to pray and rest. We see it in Luke 21. We see it in John 18. It is all throughout the gospel. So this is a place where Jesus regularly met with his Father, where he came to be restored and filled and focused. And this is a separate sermon that I don't have time to preach, but if the Lord Jesus Christ had a need for solitude to draw away, to be replenished by his Father, is there anything that would give us a reason not to do the same thing? We need to draw near to the Lord God so that he might replenish and refocus and renew us. Amen? Jesus would draw away. And so because it was this special place for he and his disciples, it makes sense that in this moment of great need and deep sorrow that Jesus would come to the garden again. You know, in looking at at this account, uh, one of the first things we notice is that Jesus almost appears weak. He almost appears weak. We don't see that strong carpenter. We don't, we don't see that man turning tables in the temple. He, he doesn't appear to be walking toward his death with defiance and courage that we might expect to see. And this can breed a little bit of confusion. Why? Here's why. Because Jesus is the hero. He is the hero of our faith. He is the hero not just of the Gospels, not just of Paul's letters to the church. Jesus is the hero of the entire biblical narrative. It is about him, and he is the hero of it. So when we look at this and we think about a hero, every time we think of a hero, we think of someone exhibiting greatness. We think of someone who is standing against evil, defiant to the death toward anything other than the good and never displaying Weakness. So how are we to view this moment with Christ? This holy, intimate, painful, vulnerable, and deeply sorrowful moment. I think the first thing we have to do is we have to see it for what it is not. We have to see it for what it is not. Here's the first thing that I want you to get today, and that is this. Jesus did not fear the suffering. Jesus did not fear the suffering. In verse 33 and 34, he says, and he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Listen, there's no doubt that Jesus was struggling, and there is no doubt that Jesus was suffering. And look, there's all kinds of suffering, right? There's all kinds of suffering. Suffering at my house may look, like net, may look like Netflix going down, right? At our house, that's potentially suffering. If the boys can't play Fortnite, that feels like suffering. You know what I mean? Um, I remember in uh, late junior high and high school, every August, a, a special season of suffering would roll around called two-a-days. And, oh, Lord, anybody else? Anybody else just remember thinking, I would just rather school not start than do that whole thing. Um, Those were terrible. Two-a-days, that's a special kind of suffering. But listen, this is a different thing. This isn't an inconvenience. Uh, This is is a significant struggle and a significant suffering that Jesus is in the middle of. God's Word says he was greatly distressed. He even confesses that to his disciples, these men who called him Lord, these men who had seen him perform miracles, these men who had walked away from their entire life to follow him for three years, he confesses to these 
men. He says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. So yes, Jesus was struggling. But listen, I, I do not believe for a moment that the struggle we see from our Lord and Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane was born from some fear of physical pain that he would endure. And listen, he had full knowledge of what was coming. He had full knowledge of what was coming. He knew what lay on every step on the road to the cross. He knew it. But listen, I don't believe it was the betrayal of Judas. I don't believe it was the arrest. I don't believe it was uh, the trial or the, the denial of Peter, the unjust conviction, the scourging, the beating, the mockery, the crown of thorns, the silence of his friends, or the chant of crucify him. I don't even believe it was the torment of the cross because I do not believe Jesus feared the pain. Why do I believe this? If you think back just across the history of the church, history, our, our history as a believing people is littered with stories of men and women, martyrs who went to their death for the sake of the gospel with joy and courage. It is littered with stories of men and women who went to their death proclaiming the good news of Jesus with no measure of fear in their heart. I think of Stephen in the book of Acts. I think of Stephen right there in chapter 6. You remember that story? He was declaring the gospel, and he had been found guilty. And um, so they began to stone him. And as they stoned Stephen for preaching the gospel, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and Lord, do not hold this against them. He went to his death worshiping and declaring Jesus as Lord. I think of a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was a first century believer who was a disciple of the apostle John. And he became bishop of Smyrna. The apostles had put him in that position. And as an old man, he was arrested by Rome, dragged before the magistrate and told that if he did not declare Caesar as Lord, he would be burned at the stake. And he wouldn't do it. He would, all he had to say were three words, Caesar is Lord. And he wouldn't do it. And so... The Roman soldiers drug him off to be burned at the stake. And when they got to that place, there were, um, it says the Roman soldiers couldn't find the nails or the ties that they would bind people to so that they wouldn't try to get away. And I want you to hear what Polycarp said. He said, leave me as I am for he who grants me to endure this fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre unmoved. Wow. That's courage. That is courage. You know, I think of a young lady named Rachel Joy Scott. This was a 17-year-old senior who 20 years ago was the first shooting victim at Columbine High School. Can you believe that was 20 years ago? 20 years ago. Her and a friend were having lunch in the courtyard, and the two gunmen showed up, and she was the first one they shot. They shot her three times, and Rachel's faith was known. Uh, to her friends, to everyone in the school. She declared that she was, that Jesus was the Lord and she walked in obedience to God and she just made her faith known. She just lived it out. And though she had been shot three times, she was still alive. And one of the gunmen, seeing that she was alive, approached her and just asked a very menacing question. He said, do you still believe in God? He, he wanted that to mean, look what it got you. 
can you still believe? And she looked at him and said, you know I do. He shot her again, and she died. Now, compare these stories to the agonizing prayer of Jesus. Jesus is trembling. He is, his stress and strain so heavy that his body is beginning to break down. We see in the other Gospels, the account of the Garden of Gethsemane, it says that he began to sweat drops of blood, which is a physical breaking down of the blood vessels and capillaries in his body under the stress and strain of this moment. He almost seems afraid. But wait, we have to think this is Jesus Christ. This is, this is the one who spoke worlds into motion. He commanded the seas to be still, and they obeyed. He cast out demons and unclean spirits, and they would flee in fear from him. He caused water to become wine. He fed 5,000 people with two loaves and, uh, or two uh, fish and five loaves of bread. He cursed a fig tree, and it withered away. He healed diseases. He opened blind eyes, and he brought the dead back to life. This is the eternal Son of God, perfect in power and eternal in glory. So what are we seeing? What is causing sorrow at such a level that it almost kills him? And how can I tell you with confidence that it wasn't the pain and it wasn't the suffering or the torture that he was to endure? Because Jesus never prayed, Father, save me from these Romans. Now understand, he knew every step on the road, right? He knew everything. that was. He never prayed, God, save me from these nails. He never prayed, save me from this cross. Those things were coming. Those horrors were terrible, and they were coming. But listen, they weren't in Gethsemane. They weren't in the garden. What made Jesus stagger was not the suffering. It was the separation. It was the separation. Here's the second thing I want you to get. Jesus agonized over the separation. Look at verse 35 and 36. It says, And going a little farther, he fell on the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father. Now, what does Abba mean? It means Daddy. It means Daddy. It's that intimate name that the child says to their father calls him daddy. You know, growing up, if my kids got hurt and they needed me and they crawled up into my lap, they didn't crawl into my lap and go, hey, Pastor Matt. <laughs> They've actually never called me that. be weird if they did. They've also never crawled up in my lap and called me Matt or really father. When they needed me, what did my children call me? Dad, daddy, that dad, I need you. Dad, I need you. I think of when my boys run track, they find it very convenient to get calf cramps in the middle of the night. And uh, when we were learning how to, how to deal with those, uh, we would get calf cramps and I would just hear from the house, Dad, and get up and we'd go stretch them out. Um, but when they need me, they, they call me Dad. Jesus, using this word, is, is letting us peek behind the curtain to the need that he feels. He says, Daddy, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It is the separation from his father. That was the true horror of the cross. And listen, to rightly understand that, we have to rightly understand the relationship between the father and the son. 
We know from God's word that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have dwelled together in perfect unity from eternity. They are the Godhead Trinity, so that at no point in all of eternity have they separated. At no point in all of eternity have they had less than perfectly divine communion with one another. At no point in all of eternity have their faces looked away from one another. They have eternally dwelled together perfectly. And now, here in the garden, for the first time in eternity, God begins to look away from his son. And there's this separation. When we were, uh, our kids were little, we were serving at a church in Mississippi. And the church was about five, six miles or so away from our home. And one afternoon, the boys were playing and uh, Carrie came in and saw Jackson and I said, hey, where's Clayton? I don't know. He was probably about three, I'm guessing, something like that. And uh, so Carrie begins to look around the house, you know, all the rooms, closets, bathrooms. We're looking everywhere. Don't see him. She goes out in the yard. She's looking in the backyard, in the front yard. The boy's nowhere to be found. You were nowhere to be found. And he's already in trouble. This was forever ago. <laughs> and um, so there's that unique panic, right? That anxiety starts to rise up. Why? Because there's, there's a separation. She, she didn't know where he was. So she starts looking in neighbor's yards, and he wasn't there. And that's the moment the real panic, I think, began to set in. And she scooped up Jackson, and she grabbed Kelsey, and they literally began to run down the street of our neighborhood yelling for him. Now, thankfully, he, now he had wandered out of our home onto the street onto a busier street, and a sweet lady happened to see him and go, he looks out of place. And so she, she walked him into her yard, and her neighbor happened to be someone who was a part of my ministry at that church, and she recognized Clayton, and she came running out wondering what in the world he was doing, nowhere near his house. And then at that moment, do you know what she heard? She heard my wife screaming through tears, screaming for Clayton. And then Carrie heard one of the greatest sounds in her life, which was the sound of Mitzi screaming back, I've got him. I've got him. And there was this slow motion moment where they're running down the street toward, you know, reuniting. And Mitzi's crying, Carrie's crying, Clayton's crying, but he doesn't know he's in so much trouble. And, uh, and listen, here's why he wanted to come. Here's what he was doing. This is the sweetest thing ever. He was coming to the church because he wanted to give dad a hug and kiss. Now, yeah, oh, fine. I still had to tear him up, though, because the boy was in the street. He was in the street. And I still, I mean, but all he wanted to do was come give dad love. And listen, Carrie was so frustrated, she couldn't discipline him. She literally put him in the van and drove him to my office. <laughs> made me get up out of a meeting and go, you're about to handle this. And I was like, all right. So, but he, what made that moment so stressful? There was a there was a separation. There was, a, there was something going on that had never happened before. Jesus, the agony of this moment is that he is being separated from God. God, his father, is beginning to look away from the son. Now, the question we have to ask is why? Why? Why did God look away? Why did God abandon his son? What caused the separation, and I think we will see it in verse 36. He says, Abba, Father, 
all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. What caused the separation? It was the cup. It was that cup right there. What is the cup? This is the cup of God's wrath. This is the cup that has stored up the wrath of God toward the sinfulness of man. God is holy, which means that he cannot abide sin and remain holy. So sin must be judged. It must be dealt with. And because he is perfect in holiness, his holiness produces a wrath for sin that must be satisfied. The wrath of God that Jesus would experience from the garden and on the cross is very literally hell. What do I mean by that? I mean this. What makes hell hell is not the pain or anguish that exists there. What makes it hell is the complete absence of God. That is why it is a place of torment. That is why it is a place of suffering because God has no place there. And when Jesus begins to make his way through the cross, what makes this moment a moment of suffering and a moment of struggle is that it is a separation. He is about to literally experience hell, the absence and turning away by God. Matter of fact, we learn that he is about to become the enemy of God. Think about that. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, it says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He, he became them. Listen, Galatians 3, chapter 13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. He became the curse. And then the verse I think that paints it so clearly is 2 Corinthians 5, 21, which says this, For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. He made him be, he became Sin. Jesus became our sin. And in Gethsemane, Jesus looked full into the cup of God's wrath that burned against our sin, and the separation it would cause almost killed him. Listen, that's the difference we see between Jesus and these brave, brave martyrs and saints that have died for the sake of of the gospel. The difference is that the martyrs we read about are dying wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus and the presence of God. Well, Jesus is dying wrapped in the sins of man without the presence of God. He drank the cup and in doing so, he satisfied the demands of God's wrath for us. You know, we see this prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4 through 6. It says this, <clears throat> Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us 
peace, and with his wounds we are healed, and all we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us. Romans 3, 23, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It is because Jesus fulfilled every word of this prophecy that we can sing the, song, the lyrics to the great hymn in Christ alone. Where it says, in Christ alone who took on flesh... He was the fullness of God in helpless babe. This gift of love and righteousness was born by the one we came to save until on that cross as Jesus died, what happened? The wrath of God was satisfied and every sin on him was laid. Jesus drank the cup. He drank the cup for us, that cup that contained the wrath for every sin Every sin of my life, every lie I've ever told, he drank it. Every sinful, lustful, selfish thought I have ever had, he drank it. Every time I thought more highly of myself than I should, he drank it. Every time I put my needs above the needs of someone else, he drank it. Every time I took credit when it belonged to someone else, he drank it. Every time the Holy Spirit prompted me to be generous or courageous and I ignored him, he drank it. Every minute I ever wasted in selfish pursuits, he drank it. Every time I made an idol and worshiped it as God, he drank it. And every single time I did something or left something undone that did not please the Lord, he drank it. He drank it. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. Why? So that you and I could drink the cup of salvation. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that he drank the cup of wrath so that we get to drink the cup of salvation? John 3.36 says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. They have dr we drink that cup of salvation. However, whoever does not obey the Son does not have life, and the wrath of God remains on him. This morning, we're going to receive communion together. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. And as we do that, I, I think we think about two cups. You have to think about two cups. There is the cup of God's wrath that we talked about this morning that Jesus drank for us. It is what nearly killed him in the garden. But by the way, aren't you glad for the little sentence that Jesus spoke right after he said, would you remove this cup from me? Because I want you to hear something. Our salvation and our eternity is bound up in the words, yet not what I will, but what you will. And I want you to know when Jesus stood up out of the dirt, the dirt of that garden, he fixed his eyes on the cross and nothing would stop him from saving us. There are two cups. There's that cup of wrath that he drank for us. But we also know that before he and his disciples ever went to the garden, they had this final meal together. They were in that upper room and they were sharing this meal. And God's word tells us in Luke chapter 22 that as they shared that meal together, Jesus offered them a cup and he said, this cup that is poured out for you 
is the new covenant in my blood. If you are in Christ this morning, then you have taken the cup of the new covenant. And, and as we take the bread and the juice, it is to remind us of the sacrifice Jesus made for us. It is to remind us of his broken body and shed blood and to remind us of the cup of God's wrath that he drank for us. So we do not take it lightly. We do not take it lightly in remembering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God's word tells us when Paul was teaching the church how to do this, he said it is imperative that you do not take this in an unworthy manner. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to worship for just a moment. Our band is going to sing. They're going to sing that great hymn, I Surrender All. And as they're doing that, I want to invite you if you want to stand in worship, I want you to stand in worship. If you want to sing your surrender to the Lord, you do that. But if you need to stay seated and you need to confess sin in anticipation of receiving this sacrifice, then you stay seated and you confess and listen. But you open your heart to receive the promise that if you will confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So not only do we confess it, but we celebrate receiving the forgiveness for it, which that then turns us to be able to worship and give thanks to him. So if you want to stand in worship, you stand in worship. If you want to stay in your seat and pray, you stay in your seat and pray. If you want to come to the altar and just get on your knees before the Lord and beg him to forgive you, you do that. Whatever posture you need to take to have your heart ready to receive communion, I want you to do that. And listen, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to hear me say something. I am so glad that you are here today. I really am. And I want you to know what you're going to see, this bread and this uh, juice that we take is a reminder of what Christ has done for us. So I would ask you that if you are not in Christ, to just abstain. But I hope that it teaches you the hope that we have and the joy that we have. And so when we sing songs, it's why our hands go up. It's why our heads tilt back. It's why our eyes close. It's why tears flow because we're overwhelmed with what he's done for us. So right now, as we prepare for this moment, I want you to pray. I want you to worship. I want you to take whatever posture necessary so that we can rightly remember and give thanks that he has drank the cup of wrath for us so that we might drink the cup of salvation. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you that in Jesus Christ, we are found innocent. God, innocent. We are declared not guilty because he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. I will never get over it, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for getting up out of the garden and going to the cross and dying for me, paying that penalty for me, for drinking the cup of wrath. Right now, Lord God, as we worship, as we sing our prayers, as we pray, God, I pray you would move in our heart. And I pray you would illuminate in us the deeper meaning and the joy of taking this bread and this juice now. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Whatever posture you need to take, you do that as we worship.